this was revealed to us. I can't take any credit for these ideas. This was something that was presented in a beautiful way, and it changed everything. It, it changed the way we spent our money. It changed the way we thought about money's purpose. It changed where we lived. We made a lot of really significant decisions to reorder our lives around this idea that the stuff that we were blessed to receive, income from my job, was really not meant to increase our lifestyle, but was really meant to be used to heal the world. You're listening to Jesus Walks on Wall Street, where real people working in the finance industry talk about life, work, and faith, with your host, Pastor Nathan Hart. And we're here with Mark Flug. Now let's talk now just about what it exactly it means to be a Wall Street lawyer. You know, as I was waiting over in the lobby talking with the receptionist, I was curious and I said, is this entire building full of lawyers? <laughs> and she told me that the floor six through 31 is the law firm. And I said, that's a lot of lawyers. She said something like 850 lawyers belong to this firm worldwide, something like that. She, she didn't even know what the, uh, she said, this is a guesstimate. I think there's over 800 lawyers. Yeah. So... Help us understand. Now, there's going to be people listening to this podcast in the heartland, and they're going to hear a phrase like Wall Street lawyer. What is your role? And we're going to talk in a few minutes about faith and all those things, but just talk industry right now. Sure. What's your role in the industry, and how does it affect the overall economy? And just explain that to us. Sure. There's a lot of different ways to answer that question. We are a large law firm. Um, We have almost 900 lawyers globally. uh, across 11 offices. New York is our headquarters, uh, but we have f- uh, five U.S. domestic offices, um, and we have six overseas offices. Um, and an interesting part of my story would be that I've spent actually a fair bit of my career overseas. I was in mm-hmm. our London office for eight years and, and did a shorter stint in our Hong Kong office. But we are a large law firm, and we're not the largest. There are, lo- there are law firms, both U.S. law firms and international law firms, uh, that have thousands of lawyers. Um, but we are considered a large law firm. Uh, the firm that I work at is also considered an elite law firm. Uh, we work on very large transactions and very large litigation matters for large corporate clients um, and, other, and other institutions. We don't we don't get involved in things like personal injury or mm-hmm. or cases like that all of all of which is perfectly fine and natural but that's just not our mm-hmm. business our business is working for large institutions um doing their their most important legal work um we're expensive one of the one of the things that uh, distinguishes uh, Wall Street law firms from law, from the thousands and thousands of other law firms around the country um, are, are that we're really expensive. Yeah. Uh, and, and the reason why we're really expensive is uh, that we are operating at, on the, on, in these very large transactions uh, or, or litigations for that, for that matter, uh, doing sort of, you know, as sometimes referred to as you know, bet the company type transactions yeah. or cases, um, and that requires a, v- a level of expertise, um, commitment, yeah. um, uh, dedication to those matters. Which is one of the reasons why maybe your lights, your nights get late sometimes. The nights get very you're late so dedicated from to the times job. to time, and 
and we were also able to recruit the best and the brightest from the best law schools in the world. Um, and so we are a premium service provider. Um, there are all sorts of law firms providing services for the entire spectrum of legal needs that our country requires that people need. Um, we operate within a fairly narrow niche of that, um, and that niche is, you know, is sort of the sort of the sort of the premium service provider. So if you think of automobiles, you know, we're, we're kind of like the Mercedes in the sense, um, you know, that we're expensive, but you don't always need a Mercedes. And, and we have relationships with, with law firms all over the world. And when a client comes to us or a prospective client comes to us and says, hey, this is my legal issue, um, if we're not the right service provider, we will refer them to our friends and relationships to make sure that they're, they're getting the right value for service. So, but when a company comes to us and says, hey, um, you know, we're looking to do a multi-billion dollar merger, that's us. So let me just try it for instance, and you tell me if I'm understanding this correctly. Sure. Let's say Google wants to buy an airline. They want to buy Delta Airlines or something. Google wants to buy an airline. I don't know. It's, just, it's a weird, <laughs> weird for sure. instance. But yeah, of course. With it, there's obviously lots of legal issues that would come, that would accompany that. Not only how that new company would, you know, interface with, U.S. law, but also even in the figuring out how this thing's going to operate on the practical level, w would they call you? And and would, is that the kind of thing that sure. you would come and help with? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, when a large company like a Google is looking to acquire um, a large business and spend billions of dollars to to buy that business um, because there's so much money on the line. And because the nature of the business they are acquiring might be a very complex global business with a lot of potential issues, they want to make sure that they're getting great legal service they're willing, and they're willing to pay for it. And so, yes, they, they would come to a firm like ours um, for that type of transaction. What would be another, for instance, beyond that sort of scenario? I'll give you an example of a deal I've worked on. Sure. I was a resident in our London office uh, for a number of years. While I was there, I worked for a client called KKR, which is a large private equity institution. Private equity is basically an organization. Sorry, I just got a call no from, problem. believe it or not, is from it, KKR. It's that, amazing. <laughs> it's coming in right now, but I'm going to ignore that. Okay. I worked for uh, KKR while I was in London, and I, they're one of my most important clients. Um, and private equity institutions, for our listeners who may not be familiar, are, are organizations that um, raise capital in private markets, which is why it's called private equity, as opposed to public markets. Uh, and they pool that capital, and they use that money to buy companies. And then they own those companies, and they work with those companies to try to make them better, more profitable, um, and then they create value by doing that, by working with the companies, making their operations work better um, and make them more profitable. They create value for the people that invested and for, the, for their investors. And so that's what private equity does. So I work for KKR. They're one of the longest and most, and most uh, accomplished of these private equity institutions to buy a UK company called Boots. Now, if anybody's been to London before and has walked down any of their main streets they'll see um a boots the chemist store basically on every on every corner it's similar to our cvs's or walgreens okay. 
It's a drugstore chain. Um, and Boots was a public company. And back in 2007, KKR partnered up with um, their chairman, uh, or executive uh, vice chairman, rather, to take that company private. Um, and then that was the transaction I worked on. So we, KKR worked with, with w- on that transaction, I worked up with KKR on that transaction to, to take them, to take that public company private. And KKR owned it for a number of years. Uh, and then some years later, Walgreens, the U.S. Uh, uh, company, uh, approached uh, uh, Boots and said, we'd like to do a, a, a cross-border or an international merger. Um, and that was a, uh, at the time it was, and that deal did in fact occur. Did you and, work on that deal And as I well? worked on that transaction as well, among, along with numerous other people. Um, but I was right at the forefront uh, working on that transaction. And at the time that transaction was, uh, was, was done, it was a $20 billion transaction. That's when with the Walgreens and Boots merger was twenty billion dollars, approximately. Yeah, yeah. I so, mean, depending on how you count the beans, but it was sure. a, a twenty billion dollars. So transaction. it's worth it for those companies to hire an expensive elite law firm like you, in order to make sure, because you know, a, a mistake by some, you know, Chevrolet law firm instead of the Mercedes law firm <laughs> could cost them a billion dollars. So they make their money it's back just, by spending money on you. Is that right? That's correct. I mean, I think you you. It's, it's relative in that way. It, the issues, because the companies are so large and the amounts that are being expended are so significant, the issues can, be, can also be significant. And they are looking to, to hire advisors that are going to spend the time, that have the talent and acumen and the experience, having done transactions like that, um, that will help them hopefully you know, do those deals in the right way. So, and that's an example. And deals like that, uh, are the kind that we get involved in. So convince me, Mark, let's just pretend for a minute I'm a, I don't know, I'm a small-time farmer in Iowa, yes. or I'm a teacher in Nebraska, mm-hmm. or a small business owner in Minnesota. Convince me why Wall Street lawyers are an important part of the overall economy. Well, I think uh, lawyers, especially transactional lawyers, which is what I am, uh, I'm not a litigator. i I've never seen a courtroom. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I work with corporations and investors like KKR uh, on their largest transactions. Um, transactional lawyers are catalysts. Um, you might even think of us as enzymes. So we're the parties to the transaction. So in the case of that, I just the example that I just gave you, the 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 Walgreens party and the Boots party. Those are the those are the principles. Those are the parties that are actually. Uh, doing the transaction and and that are producing a product or a service, um, but in order for those two companies to come together, there's a lot of complexity, legal complexity, uh, that needs to be worked through, and the lawyers allow you know enable that to happen, um, and I so in in that sense we're we're at, we're catalysts or enzymes mm-hmm. to allow those nutrients to get together and and create something hopefully bigger and better. You know, I think the other thing that has gotten a little lost um, is that lawyers, uh, you know, whether they're transactional lawyers or litigators or they don't work at a big law firm, but they work in in smaller law firms or they work in government or in public service. The law as a profession, as a broader profession, 
is about bringing uh, order to society. Um, people disagree about the whether a law is a good law or a bad law, but I think most people would agree that law in general is a good thing as opposed to lawlessness or chaos. Um, and I think you know one of the things that lo- lawyers do if they're doing their if they're doing their job well um, is that they're bringing uh, order and and lawfulness and regularity to the way people interact with each other. Now that doesn't always go well. Um, sometimes there are issues, and of course there's also litigation. Um, but I think litigation definitely beats, you know, uh, bows and arrows and guns for sure. <laughs> so you know, lawyers have there's it, there's a nobility uh, in what lawyers are supposed to be doing. Um, I know lawyers get a bad rap uh, from time to time. I'm not oblivious to that. Um, but when you sit back and think, how, what would it look like if there weren't any laws or if there weren't lawyers um, and it was really everybody fending for themselves, um, I think we could all imagine that the world might be a little bit less safe uh, and certainly a little bit less you know, normal. So that's the positive spin I on found it. that very convincing, actually. <laughs> <laughs> now, that doesn't, you know, I, look, I think the other thing is, is that... Um, there's, you're drawing a distinction between like a Wall Street lawyer um, and any other type of lawyer. I think that t- to not go on about it too long, but to maybe just kind of hit the point slightly differently than I did before, Wall Street lawyers or lawyers in you know big cities, we can say we can use Wall Street as a general term for lawyers in big cities. They're, you know, sure. lawyers in Dallas and Chicago and Los Angeles, et cetera. Um, that tend to do the same things that I do. Uh, we're, we're operating within a niche of the legal marketplace, and I think that as long as it's understood that that we don't think we're the end-all, be-all to the legal profession, right. that we're a, a part of the legal profession, but not the entirety of it, or maybe not even necessarily the most important part of it, then I think that's a that's a that's a that's a good mindset. Um, we, we may get caught up a little bit too much in self-importance and, sure. and I think a little humility is always a good thing and so I'd be the first one to admit that you know while I while I work on really important things and important transactions um, you know a lawyer working uh, you know for let's just say a, a battered woman who's trying to get you know defend herself yeah, against advocating some advocating and yeah. defending someone is doing just as noble and just as important work as mm-hmm. as I am just because there's no billions next to her right. her uh, her matter doesn't make it any less valid hmm. that's also quite convincing and i can imagine even opportunity to fight for justice even in a large merger and acquisition sure. you could see corruption creeping up and if you are a lawyer with integrity you're going to stop that and if you're a lawyer who's susceptible to that corruption, you might buy into it. That's true of really any industry, isn't it? It is. And and I think, you know, especially as we think about the role that our faith plays in the work we're doing, um, it's important to, uh, to I think, keep in mind and, and, and maybe even at the forefront of our mind um, that uh, even our professions are not the most important thing and, and that they all come uh, come within the purview or under the umbrella of 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 what God's up to. Um, so great, that's been great an- segue. Let, let's start talking less about industry and more about you personally. Just tell me about your faith. Sure, happy to. I was raised in a Christian home. 
Um, both of my parents were believers. Um, I will say that for me personally, my faith did not become really personal to me until later. Um, I was, I think, like most uh, church-attending uh, youth, sort of exposed to the ideas. But for me, it wasn't, it wasn't, really, it wasn't really personal or real to me until later. I just attribute that to my own walk. I think mm -hmm. all people have different journeys and experience Christ and, and fi kind of figure that out in different ways and at different times. But for me, I struggled with my faith in high school. Um, and by, by the time I was college age, it wasn't something that had kind of a hold on me. Yep. And so I went to college and, and really... Uh, sort of stepped away from any kind of regular practice of uh, of of of, in, of my faith, um, and those were times when I, you know, I think learned a lot about my own frailty, um, and and by the end of my college years, uh, was in a fairly dark place mm -hmm. personally, um, having. Uh, you know, really, I think, lived a, a pretty hedonistic lifestyle, and some of some of that was not not all bad in the sense that it, it wasn't just sort of one horrible thing after another. Um, but it's a dissipation, so it's 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 cumulative. Over time, it wears you out spiritually, and you dry up as a human being. I believe. And so by the end of my college years, I was, I was dried up. I was worn out spiritually and, uh, and, and really um, struggling. Um, although the interesting thing is that outwardly, that wasn't apparent. So I was a very good student. I basically was an A student all through college. Uh, I was very involved uh, on campus with various organizations in leadership positions had a good friend network. Um, and so no one would have known uh, about that inward struggle just by looking at my resume, so to speak. Um, but I was struggling and questioning a lot of things. Uh, and the beautiful thing that occurred to me in my senior year of college was that I met Laura. Uh, she was a this was at RIT? This was at RIT. Uh, I was a senior. She was a junior. She was a transfer student from Michigan State. Uh, so she was someone who I hadn't seen around campus before. And she and I met fairly early in my senior year. And um, without getting into too much of the detail of our courtship, we, we, uh, we started seeing each other frequently and, and, and really kind of hit it off. And by the end of my senior year, um, we were engaged but she came from a very strong Christian family. Her faith was much more an active part of her life. Uh, she too, she would say, where she here, was struggling at the time. But it wasn't apparent to me. She looked like an angel compared to the way <laughs> I felt about myself. So it was, she was very attractive in that sense. Um, she was attractive in a lot of senses. <laughs> but she was, she was spiritually attractive to me. Um, and she talked about Jesus and talked about her faith in, in a very non-judgmental, um, 
uh, way, which which led me into conversation about this, which I which and these these were conversations I hadn't had in years, and so that also begat an exploration of my faith, and a, and reignited in me a desire to want to know um, who I was in the Lord, and so re- rededicated my life to Christ um, uh, during that year, mm-hmm. um, and that started a journey. Um, I think that wasn't the culmination of a journey. That was really the beginning of a journey um, into my Christianity that really is still going, um, that has had its ups and its downs. Um, and some of the ups have been extraordinary joys and triumphs to see God doing the amazing things that he's done, not only in me, but in, 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 peop- in others. And it just he's given us insights into what he's up to. Um, but also to some pretty difficult things, um, the ugliness of our sin and how that bears itself out in relationships, in marriage, in fatherhood, in, in, in the isolation that one can feel um, from other people um, as you walk through life, um, feeling, you know, feelings of loneliness and sort of quiet desperation, um, sort of those spir- spiritual islands we find ourselves on sometimes. Mm-hmm. And so he's revealed those things to us as well, and, and to, or to me. And as I said, the journey is still going. But I think in recent years, within the last five to six years, I would say, for various reasons we maybe will talk about, there's been some really significant and, and, and uh, inflections. Yeah. Um, and those things have actually brought a sense of closure to certain areas of my life which i think are interesting and then also openings to new experiences of god um maybe new ways to kind of also express my faith or pursue my faith which have been really life-giving um and so that that's a little bit yeah about so my journey so far when I you're guess. talking about god closing some things and opening others yeah. i think what i'm hearing in you is you now have a heart and a life and a marriage that is surrendered to the Lordship of Christ and you're allowing him to close some things and open others. Yeah. Can you give some examples of what that looks like? Yeah, of course. So um, I like to use um, verbs uh, like surrendering (laughs) um, Mm. as opposed to past, or at least as opposed to past tense concepts, Mm -hmm. um, process of journeying or surrendering is ongoing, I believe. But the closure has occurred in in a number of different areas, but I'll give you one example, which I think is really important in terms of how it it unleashed me spiritually. And that is that I had to to wrestle with and and deal with regret and shame. Hmm. And so I mentioned to you that I had some pretty, you know, dark times as a college student. And frankly, as I, even after I rededicated my life to the Lord in college and pressed into an engagement and then marriage and then child rearing and then the early parts of my professional life, uh, there were some really hard struggles. Um, and that weighed on me as a man, but as a Christian man in particular, um, and I really didn't under I didn't really know how to reconcile what I believed with with that. Um, and the easiest way to to 
describe what happened is to just tell you what happened mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, as, and get pretty, pretty straightforward about it. My wife and I are involved in a ministry up in Fairfield uh, where we live called We Want More. And it is run by two extraordinary, um, a couple, two extraordinary uh, people, Bruce and Cindy Halstead. And the ministry of We Want More is to meet with women and men uh, and couples and youth um, and to get very, very real and very, very transparent about their walk and their life journey and what it is they're struggling with. And then just to, and to bring Christ into the middle of that um, and to seek healing and restoration. And it's, been an, it's, a, it's an extremely powerful process, and it's very simple. Um, it's first century. It's a little bit of openness, transparency, a little bit of storytelling, uh, a little bit of Bible study, a little bit of worship, and a lot of prayer. It's as simple as that. And they do this through a process of weekend retreats. Um, and several years ago, uh, I was invited um, to one of these retreats, and I went kicking and screaming because uh, I was scared, um, to be completely honest with you, just scared of what I would say, mm-hmm. scared of the junk that I was carrying. Scared of what you might feel. Scared of my feelings um, and not sure how I would be viewed by the people that were there. Mm-hmm. And an extraordinary thing happened, which was, you know, everybody there had the same stuff, the same worries and concerns and fears, the same, maybe not the same specific examples, but ish, but things they were carrying, baggage they were carrying. And through the process that I described over the course of 48 hours, uh, I gained healing from all of that stuff and found you know grace and redemption and acceptance and and put really the regret and the shame and the baggage that I had been carrying for maybe 20 years in the past and the beautiful thing about that was that in addition to just feeling the peace and the and the and the affection of the father um, in that through that process it also gave me extraordinary creative freedom and liberty and a sense of of literally just being free to explore all that God really had for me. So I I didn't know it at the time. If you had asked me or queried me at the time, I wouldn't have said that I was living in a cage of my own making, but I was. And that was really inhibiting my ability to, to experience all that God had for me. Um, And so that that redemption, that, that, that extraordinary healing that took place really freed me up to explore what God had for me. And, and, and that's what happened, you know, over the course of the following year or year and a half or so, I really discovered, uh, I believe what God had created me to be, Mm. um, what he had uniquely purposed me to do. Um, and that is, you know, and we'll talk, maybe we'll Mm -hmm. talk a little bit about this, but, um, and that is to really just sort of explore this idea of generosity, um, and what it means to be a giver. Well, let's go there. So the way that I I want the listener to kind of think about this is, you know, being in the industry that you're in, you were talking about 
how your law firm is expensive and elites and all that stuff. Yeah. So on a personal level, yeah. you've become a very wealthy person being in this industry. That's true, isn't it? Uh, I, <laughs> I wouldn't say we're wealthy, but we we but I make a lot of money. Okay. Um, uh, Define that for me then. What do you mean? Uh, millions of dollars mm-hmm. a year. Um, and I know that some people are going to say, well, of course you're wealthy. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I work, but I also, it's, but this is all relative. Mm-hmm. Um, I work for billionaires. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, and so I will say this, uh, that the, the, the income and the affluence that we have been blessed to re- receive as a part of this career ha- has been mind-boggling to me. I, I never in a million years thought when I was starting out as a lawyer or as a law student that this would be the kind of access to yeah. capital or income that I would have. Um, so let's talk now about you're describing your faith and your relationship with Christ sure. and his lordship and you're getting healed you know, from some of these shame and regrets and, and, and couple that now, connect the dots between that sort of relationship with God and material wealth that has come into your life, mind-boggling in your words, what, what is the relationship now with your wealth? The, the struggle that people have, and I'm not going to say the wealthy, because I think that people that don't have a lot struggle mm-hmm. with this as yep. well, is that we, we all have areas in our life where um, and, you know, like Tim Keller will call them the areas in our life that result in idol formation. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, let me get a little specific. Um, as a child, if you've experienced insecurity, um, your parents divorced, somebody close to you died, or something like that, that's, that's, a, that's a formative experience. It's often the case that you'll that that a person like that will develop a need for security as an adult and the way in which people often seek security is to use resources and let's just say money but whatever resources that person may have to try to control their environment mm-hmm. to gain security for themselves i'll give you another example and i'm going to that's not me Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to give you an example that's closer to, to home for me. If as a young person growing up, you experience a, um, a abandonment or a, a relationship like a, a good friendship that fractured um, and you are deeply wounded, your heart is wounded, um, often as, an, as you become an adult, you seek comfort. And you have a you'll have a comfort idol, mm-hmm. and you, the way in which people oftentimes seek to comfort themselves is by trying to live life to the fullest, yeah. right? So, go out to expensive dinners, buy expensive things, live in an expensive house if you have the means to do that, or you know variations on that mm-hmm. theme. Mm-hmm. But it's comfort seeking. So that was my story. Mm-hmm. I had some really difficult experiences in my high school years where I experienced a lot of pain that still to this day, if I think about it long and hard enough, I can feel it. I can feel it in my heart. And those experiences created in me a really deep-seated desire for comfort 
And so that was me as I grew up. And even as I became a professional and a committed Christian, comfort was my thing. So, we, you know, I, we could, I find it easy to spend money on nice things, yeah. on an expensive bottle of wine, on an experience like a big vacation, none of which, I should be clear, are, are wrong in and of themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but what is twisted is the human heart's desire to use those things to to replace what can only be provided by Christ himself. Yep. And so that's a long way to get to the, the following answer to your question, which is that several years ago, after I found that healing through that ministry that I referred to, um, I attended a conference um, that was sponsored by an organization called Generous Giving, uh, which is an organization that my wife and I are now very much involved in. And at that conference, I discovered, we discovered, both my wife and I, at the same moment, frankly, almost literally, um, a new idea about what it was that, that money and our resources um, that we are blessed to have could be used for, as opposed to using them for what we had been using them for, which is to try to find security, which is really more my wife's thing, or comfort, which was my thing, we could use our resources and dedicate our time, our influence, and our money um, to trying to heal others, um, to try to um, extend grace to others the way Christ extended grace to us. Um, One of the most revealing passages in the Gospels about the way God's a giver um, is the famous scripture that for God so loved the world that he gave his son. That scripture is basically the idea that love animates giving. The, the, mm. the reason we give, the reason that we um, take what we have and offer it to others is because we love. And you could almost say that giving is love, hmm. that it flows from love. And so we were. this was revealed to us. I can't take any credit for these ideas. This was something that was presented in a beautiful way to Laura and I, um, like I said, several years ago at this conference, and it changed everything. It, ch- it changed the way we spent our money it changed the way we thought about money's purpose it changed the way we it changed where we lived we made a lot of really significant decisions to reorder our lives around this idea that the stuff that we were um, blessed to receive income from my job was really not meant to increase our lifestyle but was really meant to be used to heal the world and and that's been the path that we've been on for the last several years, and it's been really amazing to see what God has done through that as we've taken steps down that path. I talk with a lot of people about what it means to be generous, you know, with the resources God has given. And for a lot of people, the idea of a 10% tithe seems like a real stretch. Yeah. You know, like, oh my gosh, how could I get up to 10%? Now, I sure. happen to know because you've revealed this that you and Laura, um, feel led to give significantly more than 10% of what God gives you. Yeah. Take us from, I know we only have a couple more minutes, but just take us from, you know, 
the, the previous way of thinking about resources as something to bring me comfort and security and all that stuff. And so mm-hmm. you got to have, got to get everything you can yeah. to giving away significant portions of what you've been given. Sure. Well, should I just put it in some percentage terms first and sure, then we can talk a little bit about yeah. what some of the outflows have been? We were, I think, fairly typical Christian givers, and um, and a lot of people would actually have, and did, in fact, say that we they thought we were pretty generous. And so we were giving, on average, anywhere between 2 to 3% of our income. Uh, we were not tithers um, because we were... We, we said to ourselves that we were New Testament givers, not Old Testament givers. <laughs> um, and we felt that it was a great excuse to not give 10%. <laughs> um, and after this moment occurred and, and where we really got, our, our whole attitude got realigned and, and, and inverted, as I will say sometimes, uh, we went from that to uh, anywhere between 25 and 30% of our income. Uh, I, I don't say that to set a, a marker down I don't believe in hard lines um, around that area. I, I think um, the best thing I could say about how much is what's said in Scripture, which is, you know, what does your heart say? What's God calling you into? In the old days, we, used, we looked at that and said, oh, well, that means we can give as little as yep. we can, yep. um, and it's okay. And now we look at that scripture and it challenges us. Can we do more? Um, and we've also started inverting other questions that often get used in this space, like how much is enough? Um, as, and, and the question we ask ourselves now is, instead of should I give it away, is do I really need to keep it? Um, and it just changes the nature of, of, the, of the, changing the nature of the question. Um, changes a lot of our mindset and our heart set around what it is that what is our relationship to money what have we done with some of the money we've given away well we've we've invested in ministry that that that's personal to us um so i mentioned before we want more um in that ministry that changed our lives and it didn't just change my life it changed my wife's life she's now engaged as a facilitator in over 30 retreats at that ministry um, it, they had they did some extraordinary work with our kids. Um, we're now donors to them. We've mm-hmm. partnered with them and and, uh, and and are working with them to to expand that ministry's reach in our region. Um, we've also started a, we've gotten involved with generous giving. So my wife and I now facilitate small group conversations about generosity, um, seeking to help inspire people to look at this question about what is their relationship with money. Um, or do they have idols in their life that are that are trapping them, um, and to hopefully try to set them free, to explore what God might have for them in that area, again without any rules or regulations, just what is God potentially calling you into, um, and then my wife. One of the things that we're most proud of is my wife and I have started a together with others um, an organization here in New York City called Generosity New York. Um, uh, which is uh, trying to work with Christian donors, givers, to bring them into community with each other. Um, because givers often work alone <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and can feel very isolated in their giving. And what we thought would be interesting would be, can we, get, can we bring community to the giving space where people can convene with each other, talk about the latest and greatest ideas, mm-hmm. um, and collaborate? 
um, and to try to do it the way Jesus did, which was always in relationship as opposed to uh, on his own or on, yeah. on, on, our, on our own. So, so that's some, so there's some of the things that we've been involved in. And it, like I said, it's been super exciting. Um, I, one question I asked myself back when I, we were getting into this was, what does this look like at work? Mm-hmm. So uh, you said it, I'm a, I'm a Wall Street lawyer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How do I bring ideas like generosity into my workplace? And the, the, the truth is, is that it's a difficult thing to, to come to work and to be talking about money all day long. Um, but the, so the way that got processed um, was I, I actually met with a really good friend who was a executive coach and I threw that question at him. I'm like, I'm not sure how to, how that's going to play out in my workplace. And he said, well, have you ever considered mentoring? And I said, you mean like going to lunch? And he said, no, that, that's not mentoring. <laughs> He's like, I mean, really intentionally investing in other yeah. people and in their professional careers. Uh, I'm like, I don't even know how to start. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know how to do that. And so we met over the po- course of about four months and we really unpacked that. And so now um, the way in which I bring generosity into my workplace um, is I is I invest in my colleagues' careers Amazing. and Wonderful. spend time with them, I, and I do the best I can to impart any knowledge or experience or that I can, and to, and and usually in our in our younger associates, we're looking for guidance, looking for mentors, looking for coaches, um, and that's been an extremely fulfilling um, uh, takeaway from this whole generosity thing. You know, a lot of times when people gain um, material provision, they gain income, especially yeah. when it starts to increase, and then someone suggests they should give some of that away, the immediate fear in their hearts is, what about my comfort? What about my security? Sure. But what you said earlier is Christ is the one who can ultimately satisfy those things. And so right. when you're going to him for comfort, you're going to him for security, suddenly you have a whole new relationship with your stuff, with your materials, with your resources. Right. And you start to ask new questions. Sure. How can I be using this as a blessing to That's others exactly, yeah. instead of trying to fill that hole in my own heart? Right. I know we need to wrap up. Your phone's ringing off the hook. Thank <laughs> you so much, Mark. This has been very edifying for me. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Do you have 30 seconds for the last one? Fellowship hour? Tell Absolutely. me something that you're thinking about. Uh, you know, one of the things that um, that uh, that we that Laura and I especially love talking about is millennials. They get knocked around quite a bit um, in the media. There's a lot being written about how they're lazy or this, that, or the yeah. other thing. Uh, we love millennials. Yeah, me too. Um, we all, we actually think that they might be the next greatest generation. Amen. Not for the reasons that the greatest generation right. was. Right but for different reasons, um, they're reevaluating what matters. And I think some of the things, some of the conclusions that they're drawing are the right ones. And we, the older generation, have to back off just a little bit Mm. and let them figure this out because I think they're actually coming to better conclusions than our generation did. Um, They're deciding that um, things that matter are more important than income. They're deciding that doing it together with other people is better than doing it on their own. Um, and I think they're looking, they, they, they admire excellence. They admire things that are done the right way. You know, this whole artisan, craftsmanship, handmade idea is a millennial idea. And, you know, we snicker about it a little bit. And they are, they are a little funny to laugh at. But they are, I think, 
finding answers to some of those interesting questions that I think are really wholesome. Um, they're more deeply rooted in Christian principle uh, than some of the older ideas yeah. that they're discarding. And I, and I actually think they, if they're just given some encouragement, uh, given some coaching, I think they could do some really, really great things. And so what do we talk about? My wife and I just yesterday had a two-hour long conversation with a millennial who's looking at trying to start a new business. Um, he, he's going to have to relocate from here, from up here in the Northeast down to the South to do it. He's nervous. Um, he's not sure he can do it. But we met with him, and we, and we were just trying to encourage him. Uh, we'll probably give him some financial support mm-hmm. so that he can make the leap. Mm-hmm. But that just charges us up. Yeah. Um, so anyway, that's that's one of the Love things it. we spent time doing. My heart beats the same way, and I find myself having to convince others that I'm not joking when I say millennials <laughs> are on to something. Yeah, so it's really, really encouraging to hear you say that. Good stuff, man. Thank you so Good to much, see you. Mark. You too, brother. You've been listening to Jesus Walks on Wall Street with your host, Pastor Nathan Hart. On the next episode... I mean, I had more than anyone should ever have. It was, it was really ridiculous looking back to think that I needed more. I was so lost. And it really brought me to my knees where it was causing problems between me and management. They, they saw me falling apart. I saw myself falling apart. And it wasn't until I came to Christ that I even understood any of this stuff because I needed God to show me what was going on.